0: All right, if you would, turn with me to uh, Psalm 19. That's going to be on page 391, if you want to use one of the Bibles we've provided in the chair pockets, into the aisles, Psalm 19. We're going to talk this morning about knowing God through prayer, knowing God through prayer. And I want to start this morning by illustrating with with a little story about sort of one of the big reasons why we give up on prayer. When I was a boy, I really loved collecting baseball cards. Baseball cards are, are sort of little pieces of rectangular card stock with a picture of a baseball player on the front and all of his statistics on the back, not only from the previous year, but from all the years he's played before that. And the better the player and the more rare the card was, the more valuable that card was. And, and I knew about all the values of a card because I subscribed to something called Beckett Monthly Magazine, and in Beckett Monthly Magazine, it was like the, a stock report about where your card was going. Was it fluctuating in value or was it not? And so I even I loved it so much. I even subscribed to a magazine which told me how much each of my cards were worth. And my favorite card was my Ricky Henderson rookie card. Ricky Henderson, you might not know who this guy is. He is the all-time steals leader in baseball. If you don't know what steals are, or barely even know what baseball is, that's okay. But he was the all time leader in this category of statistics. And he was, he was the best there ever was at running between base to base. Reggie Henderson was his name. And this was a card that I bought. Now, you could buy cards, you could sell cards, you could trade cards, which many of my friends and I did. We'd like to trade cards together. And I got so into it that I, I, I saved up. By doing my chores, i put aside all my birthday and Christmas money. I would do odd jobs to to collect enough money to buy the next card on my list. I had a list of cards that I wanted. My friends and I would would write them down, and we'd have a list. And my mom would take me sometimes to this memorabilia shop where people had, like, signed balls of different sorts, soccer balls, baseballs, basketballs. But one of their featured things was they had a whole selection of baseball cards. My mom would drive me there from time to time as I spent all the money I earned. She was probably wondering, what the heck are you doing uh, spending all this money on a piece of cardstock?" But I did anyway, and as, as I went, I took this, this list in to the owner of the shop, and we would go through the list together, and he would tell me what cards he had or what cards he was going to get in, and as we did that, we kind of got to be familiar with each other. One day, my mom was going to a store in the same shopping center as this memorabilia shop. And as she went to the store, I asked if I could go into the memorabilia shop. I didn't have, though, uh, my list with me, nor did I have any money with me. But I said, I'll go in anyway. I've kind of, you know, I've talked to this owner before. So I went in, and we started to chat. And I quickly realized, without my list and without any money, that we had nothing to talk about. Right? I mean, like, here's a guy who, you know, was probably in his upper 40s. I'm like 10. Right? And, and, and he's talking to me about, like, how's school? And I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, good. Uh, okay, um, so, so uh, how's business? Yeah, it's okay. All right, that's, that's all I got, right? And so things got, got a little awkward, got a little fidgety. So I kind of gave up, walked out of the store. For many of us, prayer is all about the list. We go to God so He'll know our list, but not necessarily so we'll know Him. Not necessarily to get to know Him. Our list can be long, so we're going to keep going back to Him, right? Even if the the prayers we have are are about a a yearning in our hearts that that we desperately want, about a practical provision, whether it's about a wisdom for a life decision, we'll keep going back to Him, but... When nothing pressing is on our list, nothing there to talk about, we get fidgety, give up quickly, and walk out. Here in Psalm 19, David teaches us a way to pray that fuels and sustains an ongoing conversation with God. And it helps us actually better pray the list we bring to him. The psalm begins with David seeking out God for God himself. All right, Here in Psalm 19, having encountered God, something then surprising happens in verses 12 through 14. David responds by praying the gospel. David responds by praying the gospel. And if that sounds strange, it should. It should sound kind of weird. The gospel is the good news about Jesus and his rescue plan for anyone who want to know God forever. And Jesus is the great, 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 great times 25 grandson of David. Jesus doesn't appear on the scene until 1,000 years later after this psalm is written. So how could David possibly be thinking about the gospel? How could he possibly be praying through the the, the raw truths of the gospel? Well, we're going to see how this morning. And hopefully we're going to see how we can do the same for ourselves. And along the way, I hope we see all the very good reasons why we should consider praying likewise as David did. So we're going to read together Psalm 19. Verses 12 through 14. Read with me God's Word. Who can discern his errors, his own errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's word. So we quickly notice that David's prayer primarily has to do is preoccupied even with sin, which is at least seems on the surface, uninspirational. right? Sin, sin. He keeps talking about sin, and also kind of strange, kind of weird. His first line is, "Who can discern his errors? Who can as another translation puts a new living translation. Puts it, how can I possibly know all the sins lurking in my heart? How can I possibly know all the sins lurking in my heart? So he talks about errors, then he talks about faults, then he talks about sins, he talks about transgressions. Four different words for sins in three verses. Guilt complex maybe. Is that what's going on here for David? Maybe he had a mom who always made him feel guilty about being away so often in the fields. Is this why David feels so compelled to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, sin, sin? Last week we talked about one of the best ways to get to know God is by studying his word. And do any of you guys happen to remember the number, rule number one, number two, and rule number three about studying God's words that it makes sense? Anyone remember? Yes, John. Context, context, context. Thank you, John. Very good. One person raised their hand. Come on, guys. Keep up. So the idea is you've got to know what you're reading and what's surrounding it. And so it's important when you read any verse of the Bible to read up and read down. So what we're going to do here, just real quickly, if you were to read up in Psalm 19... Starting in verses 1 through 6, as as Gordon referenced earlier, we would would recall David's beautiful words about the glory, the majesty, the awesomeness of God being communicated through the cosmos above us. The sunny sky by day, the canopy of stars by night, and that God communicates things about himself through the cosmos above us. And you might remember I I said that I did some reading on the, the first lunar missions, the first moon missions that man ever went on between 1969 and 1972 when man first landed on the moon in the three years following. Of the 24 men who traveled to the moon, 19 publicly confessed to some sort of transformation about their outlook on life and even on their outlook on God. So in all the publications and articles and and interviews with these men, most spoke about being in awe of something much bigger than them, which made them feel much, much smaller. Just by getting a perspective out in space and the vastness of it all. And then we read in verses 7-11 through how good God is to all of us, all people who read and respond to his word. That people who read and respond to God's word, God will produce life in them, wisdom, joy, sight, give them new eyes to see, endurance, and even change their lives. So, to summarize, God is big, God is good, And David confesses here in verse 12 that he is very much neither. God is big, God is good, and I am very much neither. Which, by the way, is the typical human response in any encounter with God throughout history. That's how human beings respond when they have a genuine encounter with the living God. And God is big, God is good, I am very much neither. So think about it. After rebelling against God, Adam and Eve walking through the garden. What do they do? They hide themselves As they hear God walking through the garden, right? They know God is big, God is good. I am very much neither. Gotta hide. A prophet named Isaiah had this encounter with God, a vision of the glory of God. And he says, Woe is me, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I cannot be around you, God, because you are so big, you are so good. I am very much neither. Peter, the apostle Peter, uh, encounters the glory of Jesus on a boat, and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus, you are. Big, you are good. I am very much neither. A man named Martin Luther encounters God. And as he encounters God, he keeps having to turn around and return to the Catholic confessional from which he came. Because he realizes on the way home, after every time he confesses to God, oh my gosh, I've sinned again. I am, God is big. God is good. I am neither. The great revivals in history, like the one Martin Luther sort of ex- initiated experience, when first a first person encounters God in a transformative way, and that passes on to someone else, and soon it's in a church, and then soon it's in a churches, and soon it's in a city, and then soon it's in a nation, this is what revival is. With all the Welsh revival, the Azusa Pacific, or Azusa Street revival—sorry, people encountered God and they were grieved by their sin. Sometimes there were miracles, yes, big things that God did, yes. But every revival has something in common: people encountered God, and they cried about their sin. So, for the example, the Great Awakening which uh, Great Britain and America experienced in the, in the 18th century, was filled with accounts of people weeping in the streets because God is big, God is good, I am very much neither. And here too stands David. I can't even begin to discern between, nor begin to catalog my sins. Who can do that? It's a rhetorical question, no one. There's, he thinks about times that he's pursued other pl- pleasures other than God, times that he's put self before neighbor, secret thoughts that he doesn't tell anyone else about, but he knows God sees it. The Bible teaches that sin is a disease, a disease with which we're all born. It's hereditary. And it's a disease that can be characterized in three words. "No, my way. <laughs> no, my way. That, that, that is a summary of, of sin, which which we're all born with, which as a baby, when we flip that that can of peas back into our mom's face, it's like, no. And then that just grows from there. Like any disease, sin has various manifestations, right? We know someone has a disease because they see symptoms. That happens with the sin in our hearts, too. We see symptoms of that disease come out in the way we behave. All kinds of symptoms. Flagrant rebellion, where you say, God, I know you're there, but I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. There's presumptuous kind of sins where we say, God, I want to do this thing, and I'm going to presume that you're going to forgive me later. Idolatry, the regular habit of of locating our our satisfaction, our identity in something other than God. That thing which we can't live without, that we would be so upset if someone took away from us. It's usually our idol. Over-desires, loving something good way too much, living vicariously through other people or things, perhaps even your children, Right? You love them so much that you start to live vicariously. If they're happy, you're happy. If they're sad, I'm sad. Sins of omission. Right? You don't care about your neighbor or the poor. You don't even think to go introduce yourself to the person nearby, the person who's been working with you for a long time. Sins of omission. And Then there's the unconscious sins. You don't even realize you're hurting someone else. You're hurting God. You just don't realize you're even sinning, which is honestly much of my marriage. Right? I don't even realize i do something wrong over and over again until someone tells me. Sometimes that's God. Sometimes it's someone else. (laughs) And by the way, Katie not only endorsed that joke, uh, she actually created that joke. She said, you should say this. So I just want to put that disclaimer out there. Um, (laughs) So many, so many kinds of sins that David is probably, they're probably going through David's mind which is who can discern sins? Who can discern all these errors? In my life, no one can. There's so many. To illustrate this, one of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, used to tell this story of going to the marketplace for vegetables. Like you or I would go maybe to Kamana Bay on Wednesday or to Linford Pearson Highway. And he would go to each stand, and after asking a farmer, is this all you have? The farmer would reply, well, these are just the samples of my storehouse. These are just the samples of my silo. And he compared that to our sins. David recognized that even if he starts confessing sins, Those are just the samples of his storehouse. He's got a load that he can't even catalog. There's no way to list them. You know, some people today say that because Jesus is all about grace, if you experience any kind of guilt in your life, that must not be from God. It's got to be from the devil. And that is, friends, a false teaching, that you would never feel guilt is a false teaching. In fact, healthy doses of guilt mean that you have a working conscience and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. According to John sixteen eight, that's why the Holy Spirit came to convict the world of guilt. Temporary guilt. Temporary guilt that's supposed to drive you to the Savior. It's never supposed to last that guilt because it's supposed to drive you to find a remedy for that guilt like David is driven to find a remedy for his guilt. He pleads with God, right? That second half of verse 12, he says, declare me innocent. He knows his sins are so great that he can't do anything to make up for them. So he says, declare me innocent, God. He goes on to talk about getting blameless, about getting innocent again, about being acceptable in your sight, O Lord. He cannot work off his guilt through a series of good deeds. There are too many, even for this man who's described as a man after God's own heart. This isn't just a pretty good guy. This might be a guy with the purest heart before God in history who's saying, I am not good enough. Declare me innocent, God. That word declare is nakah. It's a legal court word for a judge's declaration. In some translations, it even says, Acquit me, O God. Acquit me before you, the judge. Which sounds very much, by the way, like the gospel message. Like the New Testament, which says this in Romans 3.20. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law, Romans 3.20. You hear that? It's the same kind of language. No one can be declared righteous just by doing good stuff, by being a good person. Jesus is the only one who can be declared righteous by being a good person. He's the only innocent person who ever lived. So when David talks about declare me innocent, Jesus was that innocent person. He chooses to lose his innocence on the cross so he can credit credit it to us who believe. It's phenomenal. He chooses that for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, That God made him, Jesus who had no sin, to be sin for us. So that in Jesus we might become right with God. We can be declared right with him, declared innocent. It's beautiful. So even though God doesn't respond and won't for 1,000 more years definitively in Jesus, David moves forward in his prayer as if declared innocent. Anticipating God's gracious forgiveness, he asks in verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. These are sins in which we presume upon God's grace. We say, I'm going to do this anyhow, and I'm going to ask forgiveness later. How many people have done that before? How many of us have done that? And David says something very remarkable that the New Testament writers pick up on. He says this, let these kinds of sins, let them not have dominion over me. In other words, David recognized that he knows that the more and more I sin, knowing that it's wrong ahead of time, the harder my heart will become. The less and less I'll be able to get back to God, the less and less I want to follow God. The more I sin, conscious that you'll just forgive me later, God, the more difficult it becomes to stop sinning. It's what one pastor called the suicide of the will. You just harden your will and harden your will and harden, you just kill it, and you kill it and you kill it until you can't even respond anymore. You can't stop sinning anymore. David says, Let not that kind of sin have dominion over me. And so he pleads with God to change. Right, He wants the words of his mouth to change, the meditation of his heart to change. And this is what it looks like in prayer to repent, to turn around and change. God, having been fully forgiven, I want to be different. I want to never do that again. I want to never sin in that way again. What it looks like in prayer to repent is declaring, God, I never want to do this, and pleading, God, help me never do this again. Keep back your servant from sin and from having a rule and reign in my life. And finally, David finishes with praise, doesn't he? Verse 14. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You are my rock and my redeemer. I praise you for who you are in my life. To summarize, David has an encounter with God. He he recognizes the sin in his life. He he declares his need for forgiveness. He declares and pleads for change in his life. And finally, he he praises God who gives the grace, who gives the forgiveness, who helps a person change. In other words, David is praying the very core of the gospel, right? God, sin, acceptance, repentance, and praise. We see all that here. I want you to see this here, that David is praying the nuts and bolts. It hasn't all been put together because Jesus hasn't come yet, but he's praying the nuts and bolts and the materials of the gospel. And you might object and say, I don't see David's five-point gospel prayer plan here like you've outlined, and I understand that. That's part of my job, is is to to draw that out, apply it to light. But I want you to see that David puts down his list of prayer requests, and he goes and seeks God. He encounters God. And from there, the gospel naturally unfolds. He recognizes he falls short of God. That No matter what he does, he still falls falls short of God. He needs to be declared innocent. He needs a Savior. And that Savior will help him turn from his sin to change and live a life of praise. See, it naturally unfolds just from seeking God. So what I want us to do, we all have needs, desires, friends and family who need our prayers, no doubt. But for a moment, to put down our lists, seek ye first God and the world he's created and the word that he's revealed. And and I want us to... To, to bring, yes, the samples of sin that you can and let yourself feel the distance, the gulf between you and a very good and a very big God. And you'll have no choice but to seek a Savior, to seek refuge, forgiveness, because you can't work your way up to God. And, and just knowing that God loves you unconditionally and saves you makes you want to change, makes you want to declare, God, I want to be different. I don't want to sin in that way anymore. I, don't, I want to change. I want to repent which leads to a life of praise. Thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you, God, for changing me. It's all here, the nuts and bolts in the gospel. And we haven't even got to the best part yet. That is what praying the gospel can do for us. All the reasons why starting prayer by putting aside your list, seeking God, and being led through the gospel is so very beneficial to our souls. So here are just some reasons to pray the gospel. Here are a few. Number one, our asking gets less anxious. Whenever we sit down with God to talk with him intentionally, we rarely do so from a neutral position. We bring baggage to the table. Our lists of requests are usually idolatrous to some degree. It, it reveals what we want and usually in our timing. So when we, we sit down, we pray through our list, neglecting the gospel, we walk away oftentimes more, not less anxious, thinking through, man, is God going to do this? God hasn't done this yet. God hasn't done this yet. I've got to go back to him again. When's God going to answer my prayer? For example, a number of you parents right now have a, have a child who, who you're praying has a smooth first week or, or in some cases second week of school. Our eldest is going to British high school and our youngest is going into year five. And, and so we pray for our child to have a really good or at least tolerable first day. And you anxiously await the results. And if your child is unhappy in tears or worse, has a freak out kind of day, what happens to you? God, where were you? I'm anxious. When is this going to change? with the gospel perspective, when you pray through the gospel, you can say, God, I ask this because I believe it will honor you. So either help us get it or support us through it. Help us get it or support us through it. Help us see your glory through your provision or your work in our lives through withholding what we're asking. You can do that when you pray through the gospel because you recognize Jesus loves you. He cares for you no matter what. He's doing something. And finally, another reason to pray through the gospel, prepares me to participate in God's story, not the other way around. It prepares me to participate in God's story, not the other way around. There's a tendency when I pray to suggest to God how he can involve himself in my life. Lord, will you work and help me in my meetings, my tasks, my to-do lists, my strengths, my weaknesses, and it becomes all about me. The gospel mirrors God's story, the grand plot of the Bible that we're going to look at over the next six weeks. Creation, fall, grace, glory. We need to hear these things. We need to remember God's story every day. Because, as Luther used to say, we tend to forget it. We begin each day, at least I begin most of my days, when I wake up, I am the sun, and all other planets revolve around me. Right? My wife, my kids, my to-do list, my people i got to meet with, the church. Everything else revolves around my needs and my feelings, and i got to get all that straight to fit me. But what praying through the gospel does, it reorients your heart. It reminds you that actually no, God's story is what's going on here. How can I be a part of it? How can I participate in God's story? And when we, in prayer we work through the, the fact that we're accepted, before God, we can pass on that acceptability to others. We can tell others that you too can be accepted through Christ. We can reorient our heart in that way so we can pass on the good news to others. We can pass on his story to other people. We see this in our text, by the way. Verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. How do the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart work together. It's interesting, the word uh, meditation here is hegeon, and it's a unique musical term. Unique because it refers to something like a song, but like a a low song, almost a song that you would sing to yourself. The best way to think of it is like humming to yourself. How many of you guys this morning at some point hum to yourself? Maybe you don't even remember because you do it unconsciously. Right? David is referring then of the meditation of his heart to, to the humming of the heart. This week was challenging for us as a family because it's always about a week, week and a half where Katie, because she's a teacher, works and I also work and yet our kids are not in school and someone has to supervise them. So uh, we're always juggling like what we're going to do with our kids and going to play dates of various things or, or my being home more, these sorts of deals. So we juggle these things and Thursday morning I w- while I was home, Preparing on this sermon, our kids were downstairs. And before I started working on the sermon over breakfast, I put on a song on my iPod. It was a cover of the Rich Mullen song, uh, If I Stand. It goes, If I Stand, let me stand on the promise, you will pull me through. Anyway, you don't need to hear all of it. Well, anyway, our youngest son, Gage, was later humming it. As I went upstairs working on the sermon, I could hear him humming it downstairs. And it got louder, and it got louder, and it got louder. So Katie had to ask him, Please stop. She had to ask him three separate times, please stop humming. And it was almost like he just couldn't stop. I felt actually pretty bad for him. He was just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and he was like, stop it. And then like two minutes later, and if you think about it, humming is almost always an unconscious heart reflex, isn't it? It's, it's a deep down song. It gets in there and we just it's, it's on our mind the next day or in weird moments. Right or where we're cooking, or while we're on our way home from work, whatever it might be, and that song bubbles up in our hearts. Jesus says that our words are an overflow of what's in our hearts. Matthew chapter 12. Our words are an overflow of what's in our hearts. So what is your heart humming? If we want to spread the message of the good news, it's always going to feel forced, unless it's a song in our hearts when we pray through the gospel in the morning, that song can really stick with us and become the humming of our hearts until it grows louder and louder until all the world can